Uh, before we look at this passage in Galatians this evening, I want to make a comment about the passage from Matthew this morning. And I didn't take the time simply because of our communion service and so much that was happening in the morning service. By the way, this evening we are taking a little more time with things. Frankly, had Andrew spoken a long time, we would have sung hymns because I just think we need them, especially in uh, days like this when our congregation is going through so many trials. To sing these great hymns of the faith is incredibly encouraging. But I want to make a comment just briefly. Um, I won't unpack it in great detail, but um, there's a, a view of some evangelical scholars. I'm not talking about liberals, but evangelical scholars that Jonah is parable, that Jonah is parabolic. And for a while, several years ago, as I studied Jonah, restudied the issue, some of the arguments weighed in that direction for me, never embraced it, but I began to understand their arguments and to sense sense why some scholars were moving in that direction. For a variety of reasons, I've come to think that 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 position is incorrect, Uh, that the old view that Jonah is not, uh, not parabolic, that is to say not a genre of parable, uh, but is, um, is, is history um, for a lot of reasons. First of all, parable rarely works at that length, all sorts of things. But it was actually my reflection on the passage this morning in Matthew's gospel that led me to understand that it would be very inconsistent, I think, of Jesus to speak of the Queen of Sheba as history, of an event at the end of history, which is the judgment, and then to insert parable into that passage Um, in a way that, in the context, purports to be history. And so I I think that the the only reasonable view um, is that Jonah is history. I simply mention that because I don't want there to be any confusion about the issue at any point in the future. Um, As you hear about these things and think about these things and as we discuss them together, um, but the issue here is not a, a, a liberal conservative issue, at least not in many cases. It is an issue of genre, and I think that Jesus' teaching in that passage, or the implications of his teaching, would be that we are to view Jonah as history, as history. Now, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, as we continue our brief sermons on Galatians and Sunday evenings. I want to take into consideration verses 8 through 20. And if you have your uh, pen or pencil, and some of you take notes so faithfully, I'm changing the title to the personal Paul, the personal Paul. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. This is the word of God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. 
What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And we have seen the doctrinal issue in the book of Galatians to be of the utmost seriousness. It is that great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, which is being denied by the Judaizing party as they add to the work of Christ obedience to the Mosaic law. And so in doing, they have denied the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have removed the heart of the gospel, which is justifying righteousness. Now, I recognize that there are many exegetes today that don't take this position on the book of Galatians. I think they're thoroughly wrong. I think that there is not a greater threat to the Protestant churches today than the so-called new perspective on Paul, and that the old exegesis of Galatians is true and right and correct. And he's dealing with this core and fundamental issue of the gospel that we come to know in Paul's writings as the imputed righteousness of Christ. But not only do we find here that Paul is concerned over this doctrinal issue, but also as he unpacks this doctrinal issue, there is a personal breach as well. Uh, They had cooled in their affection toward the Apostle Paul as they have veered in the direction of false teaching and false doctrine. Doctrinal error always leads to breaks and division between people, between brothers and sisters in Christ and those who profess faith in Christ. Paul, in this passage, demonstrates a true pastor's heart. And it is so good for me to spend time in a passage like this and to be reminded afresh of what a pastor's heart is all about. He loves them still. He will always love them. No matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter their direction, his pastor's heart comes through. And he's not ready to give them up. He does not believe that they have gone full tilt toward the Judaizers. They are tending in that direction, but he wants to pull them back. And so in verse 11 of chapter 1, he calls them brothers. And in verse 9 of this passage, he calls them my little children. And he expostulates with them, and he comes to them with with great and sincere heart in order to bring them back. Now let's see several things in the passage. First of all, the reasons for the breach. The reasons for the breach, a return to idolatry. In the passage that we have read together, we find that they abandoned the gospel to serve non-gods. It's a really wonderful expression and a very, very deep one to consider the direction in which they've gone. Formerly, he says in verse 8, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. You recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that the Apostle Paul, in that passage, as he is dealing with uh, taking food that had been offered to idols, says, now concerning offering food offered to idols, 
We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, Paul says virtually the same thing in this passage. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And so the idols that were worshipped by pagans don't exist. They're not real gods at all. But nonetheless, in returning to Judistic law-keeping, it is the functional equivalent of returning to gods who don't exist. They are abandoning the gospel to serve non-gods. This is truly remarkable when we think of the richness and wonder of the gospel. But they also are abandoning the love of God. For he says in verse 9, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, and that's predestinary in language, Paul means that you are known by electing grace, that he has put his love upon you from eternity. You know him, ah, but you know him because you are known by God himself. God's love never abandons those upon whom it is truly placed, but they are losing their bearings here which leads to a creation of idols, manufacturing of false security. God's love then becomes a profound argument that they, that they are called back from deviating from the path of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they are abandoned the gospel to serve non-gods and abandon God's love, but also they abandon truth for weak and beggarly elements. For he says in verse 9, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Now, we've seen that expression before. The expression is stoicheia, and it is very complex, actually, the varying views that are held upon uh, that word, uh, weak and beggarly elements. But again, to summarize from Esser, as we did before, all things in which man places his trust apart from the living God revealed in Christ, they become his gods, and he becomes their slaves. And so whatever they are putting their trust in apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ are weak and beggarly elements. They are substituting these weak and beggarly elements for the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ who justifies sinners. And in chapter 2, verse 21, you remember that we saw that adopting legalism is presented as a denial of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. A heavenly sacrifice is necessary to pay for our sins, and this they are in danger of forgetting. They are in danger of forgetting everything upon which salvation by grace is built. The ministry of the gospel will not profit us if we cling to some other Savior than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so having summarized these ways in which they are abandoning the good news of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says, I am afraid that I have toiled for your sakes in vain. I am afraid that when I was with you and brought the gospel to you and preached the gospel to you, that all of my toil and all of my labor as a pastor among you preaching the gospel is now in vain. That you really didn't get it, that you really didn't receive it, that you're leaving those things which are the truths of our salvation. But I think that it's an amazing thing in these verses that the Apostle Paul essentially says that going to Jewish legalism is the functional equivalent to a return to paganism. He's addressing Gentiles who are following Judaizers 
And it must have stung them to hear the Apostle Paul say that when these Gentiles follow Jewish legalism, it is the same thing, in essence, as following the old paganism. And so Paul is concerned. They're following legalism. And to do so is the the same, in essence, as following paganism. And so the doctrinal breach produces personal breach. Paul's pastoral heart breaks, just breaks, as he considers how they are walking away from the truth. Let me tell you something. There is nothing that so breaks a faithful pastor's heart as for someone to profess the truth of Jesus and to walk away from that truth that they profess. There is nothing that so breaks the heart of your session. I have seen session members weep when people who have professed faith in Christ have walked away from that profession. Now this says something to us. He comes to them and he exhorts them. Can't you hear the passion of his voice? As he says to them, in essence, you've abandoned the gospel to serve non-gods. You are veering in the direction of abandoning the love of God. You're abandoning truth for the weak and beggarly elements of this world. And that says to us that we also should have hearts that are willing to accept exhortation when needed. Calvin, in his sermons on Galatians, says, If we have been awakened to the truth of the gospel, God has granted us singular blessing and it will cost us very dear if we do not not rightly esteem it. Let us be aware that these words were not simply addressed to one people. We are to apply Paul's warning to ourselves today in our own lives in order that we will not stoop so low as to abandon the truth of the gospel once we are familiar with it. It should be printed and engraved upon our hearts so that we will never be moved by the devil. Those are profound words. Do you have that heart? Do you cultivate that kind of heart? Willingness to receive the exhortation of those who proclaim the gospel to you who have authority in your life. The second thing we see here is the plea of a personal past. The plea of a personal past. The Apostle Paul is personal and loving in his plea, doctrinal error, as we have said, involves principles, but it also always involves relationships. Paul wants them to remember the first warm glow of their friendship together. Now, the reason for Paul's coming there is obscured. We don't actually know. There are all sorts of conjectures. But as he wants them to remember this, he wants them to think back upon who he was when he was with them. And he says, I want you to imitate me. He says in verse 12, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What does he mean by that? He means, I, a Jew, have essentially become a Gentile. Paul became free to live as a Gentile, so they should follow his example and live in Christ's freedom from enslavement to the law. To follow the Judaizers is not only a denial of friendship, to follow the Judaizers is a denial of the gospel of grace. But as it is a denial of the gospel of grace, it is also a denial of the personal friendship between themselves and Paul. To deny the gospel is no longer to be like Paul. He means become as I am, that is, with no hope for salvation apart from Christ. Become as I am, with no hope for salvation apart from the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Don't slide into this Judaism. Then you will become as I was before I came to faith in Christ. Don't do that. 
Don't be like me before I was converted. Become as I am, even as I have become as you Gentiles are. Not only that, he says, I want you to remember the past that we shared together. Look at verses 13 and 14. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And so they loved Paul, despite his physical malady. This is what detained him there. This is what brought him or detained him in South Galatia when he first preached the gospel. He was ill. He was sick. There was something wrong with Paul, and he stayed there because of his ailment. While he was there, he proclaimed the gospel, and they came to faith in Christ, and the churches of Galatia were formed. The malady that the Apostle Paul had, we don't know what it was. Again, the speculations are almost endless. Um, I could I could list many, but I refrain. But he says, you did not despise me. The word there, ekpetuo, actually means to spit out. Because in the ancient world, to spit out was considered a way to avoid contracting a disease or even inhaling a demon. And so the Apostle Paul uses that term. When I was with you, you didn't treat me as someone repulsive. You didn't spit out. But you received me as an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself, which when a minister faithfully preaches the gospel is precisely how his word should be received. They received Paul as Christ himself. What esteem they had for Paul because they esteemed the gospel that he preached. He wants them to remember that past, that warm glow of the past. And people of God, I think it's important for us too to remember the gospel that has been preached to us faithfully in our past and not to deviate from it in the future. But we see a third thing in the passage. We see the present coldness of the people toward Paul. So he says in verses 15 and 16, What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You were once willing to give me the things that were dearest to you. You would have plucked out your very eyes. Again, some people think that the ailment of the Apostle Paul had to do with his eyes. And so there's a reference here to the eyes. I don't know, and I don't know that anyone can know. But the Apostle says those things that were dearest to you. Can you think of anything dearer to you than your eyes? You would have plucked them out for me if it would have helped me. And when he says in verse 16, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now they regard Paul as an enemy because he speaks to them the truth about the Judaizers and their denial of the gospel. Paul wished to save them from deception. He wishes to save them from apostasy. They once received him because of the truth, They now do not receive him because he proclaims the truth. The relationship is now strained because of the truth. Paul will not compromise the truth for the sake of relationships. Paul will not compromise the truth. Paul obviously cares about relationships. He loves these people, but he will not compromise the truth even if in the end it causes him to lose relationships. Polar opposite. 
of the way that most of us operate and the way that most of us think and the way that we see things operate often in the church today. Truth, truth is little cared for so long as we maintain some sort of pyrrhic victory of what we might call peace. The Apostle Paul tells it straight. There's no velvet in his mouth. He speaks the gospel straightforwardly, even if it means that he will lose relationships. That's the present coldness, but notice fourthly the false friendship of the Judaizers in verses 17 and 18. In contrast to the true friendship of Paul, we read, they, that is the Judaizers, make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. My translation of this reads, they are ardently devoted to you but not for any good purpose. The Judaizers came with zeal. Actually, the word zelusin is used three times in the Greek text in verses 17 and 18. Zeal, jealousy. A strategy to win them to a false gospel was to play up to them and make much of them. Beware of that, my friend. These Judaizers were classic backslappers. They came with smiles on their faces. They came with all sorts of false encouragements. They didn't speak the truth, but in order to win them, they put on a good face. They were very zealous to present themselves as friends, but their aim, according to verse 17, is to shut you out. Again, many different views about precisely what that means. My own view is to shut you out of the true gospel. And in verse 18, the apostle says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. That is, to be loved by the Galatian Christians is a good goal, but the Judaizers are insincere. And so in contrast to the insincerity and false love of the Judaizers, we see, fifthly, Paul's fervent love for the people of God. Verses 19 and 20. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The Apostle Paul mixes metaphors, but the Apostle Paul is so distraught that he comes to them as if it were in the agony of a mother in childbirth. Now, Women have different levels of pain when it comes to childbirth. Some women give birth very easily. Some women experience a great deal of pain. But this also was before uh, anesthetics that would dim and dull pain. The Apostle Paul uses that, that metaphor known to everyone, and he essentially wants them to remember that when he was with them, he gave birth to them spiritually. The Lord used his gospel that they might actually come to life. And he says, I am again in this agony, the agony of a mother in childbirth, suffering the pain all over again. So in verse 19, when he says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, it is as if they were back in the womb again, and Paul was starting all over again in the birth process. And so he is grief-stricken. 
saying in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He is so deeply grief-stricken, he wishes he could be with them. He is at a loss to understand them. Moffat translates, I am at my wit's end about you. Do we have anything like Paul's love for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that would know agony of soul when people walk away from the truth? His heat, the passion of his heart, arises from Paul's commitment to the truth that salvation is not according to man. Now, that's a brief exposition of what Paul is saying here. Let me summarize by bringing some important observations. Important to me as a pastor, but I think important to you as well. First, Paul is gracious and gentle and warm and passionate. He shows them that he wants them to repent. They can see that he wants them to repent. When the minister of the gospel proclaims the gospel, there should be truth, clarity, and passion. It should show that the minister cares about the souls of men. And this comes through in his preaching, teaching, and in the writing of this epistle. Paul is thoroughly honest about his perplexity. They can tell that he cares about them. He doesn't hide the fact that he doesn't understand what's going on in their hearts or why they would set aside the eternal gospel of grace for works righteousness. But Paul also exemplifies what we read of in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. You might want to turn there so that you're reminded of how he instructs Timothy, the young pastor, that he is to conduct, con- conduct himself. In 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26. 2 Timothy 2, 23. Paul, the elder pastor, writes to Timothy, the young pastor, And he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The Apostle Paul exemplifies that loving, caring, patient attitude. Sometimes in the book of Galatians, as we have seen, he is so straightforward as to appear to be harsh. But all along, he is truly gentle, even as a mother or a father would be gentle with his or her children. Paul is straightforward. He does not soft-pedal sin. And Paul appeals to personal relationships in order to keep the Galatians in the truth. Our fellowship, one with another, in this congregation has as a major goal keeping and encouraging one another in the truth of the gospel. And so our fellowships together should be fellowships in which we are overtly opening the scriptures, speaking the truth, praying with one another, and encouraging one another in persevering grace. That is what Paul the Apostle exemplifies for us. And he appeals to friendship in warning against forsaking the truth, His love is fervent because the source of his love is Jesus' redeeming love for him. It is Jesus' pastoral heart that shows through in Paul's pastoral heart. Paul's fervency has a pastoral end in view. 
Calvin again has this to say, if a tree is half dead and completely dry, and we put new earth around the roots and help it along, it will again produce fruit. In the same way, a man who has wandered away from the paths of the gospel can be renewed if he is warned. Not only so, but he may grow and mature beyond his former condition. For we often observe such things when God pours out his grace upon those who have strayed and brings them back to the right path. Of course, this is not always the case. Therefore, we need to be on our guard and not abuse the grace of God, as so many do who turn away from God and become accomplices of Satan. Well, the Apostle Paul in this passage is not opening up to us great, deep, doctrinal truths. He has has done that, and he will continue to do that in the epistle. But he takes the time simply to speak from his heart and to say to these people, I love you. I'm your friend. I don't understand why you don't don't remember the, the warmth and glow of when I first preached the gospel to you. Why would you turn away from Christ? Why would you turn away from his gospel? Why would you turn away with these false teachers who insincerely love you, who really don't love you at all? When you saw me coming to you as an angel of God, as Christ himself, preaching the true gospel of sovereign free grace. Now, people of God, that's the kind of pastor I want to be. That's the kind of ruling elder you ruling elders should want to be. That is also how you should be one to another. You love the truth, and you love one another. These things are never intention, but you never sacrifice the truth for friendship. If you are a true friend... You preach, if you're a minister, the truth to your friends and your enemies. And if you are a true friend one to another, you will speak the truth in love. Simple message, right? Harder to do. May the Lord enable us to do so by His grace. Amen.